Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Gene Andrew Jarrett, author of the book Paul Lawrence Dunbar, The Life and Times of a Caged Bird. Gene, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, uh, presently I work as Dean of the Faculty uh, at Princeton University. I am also William S. Todd Professor of English. Uh, I've been at Princeton for one year now. Prior to that, I was Dean of the College of Arts and Science, as well as Professor of English at New York University. Wow, it sounds like quite a few hats you're wearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's right. You know, and so for the most part, I am an academic administrator, um, but I'm pleased to say that I'm, al- I'm also a literary scholar. Uh, and um, this work on uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was a labor of love, and I'm honored that I was able to complete it and that it's out today. I was wondering what led you to write a biography of Paul Lawrence Dunbar? Yeah, that's a a great question. And so I began work on this uh, biography seriously about 12 to 14 years ago. And so over the course of my uh, career as a literary scholar, I've written about African-American literature, uh, especially of the 19th uh, century. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar is someone who had lived uh, in the late 19th, uh, early 20th century. Uh, Paul Ernst Dunbar was a key protagonist in the scholarly works that I produced, uh, particularly his uh, his novel, his first novel called The Uncalled, and also his works of poetry. And uh, I've also paid attention to his uh, understanding of the political franchise of African Americans, particularly as they were emerging from slavery in the mid-19th century. And so I decided after I finished my first two books uh, that uh, I was interested in dedicating more time to studying Dunbar and his literature. And so I had a fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and that pretty much marked the time when I decided to produce not just a book on Dunbar, but an actual biography, something that walked through all of the dimensions of his professional life, but also his personal life. I thought I was, I thought it would be a great project to take as comprehensive and definitive a view of his life and career as possible. And so over the past uh, 12 to 14 years, I've been focusing especially on uh, his literary writings, his intellectual approach to uh, culture and to Uh, politics. And I also decided to delve into the more private elements of his life, given that I had access to his letters of correspondence with friends and acquaintances, and especially someone who became his spouse for a period of time, uh, Alice Ruth Moore. So in combining all of this information, uh, my hope is that I produced a story that is uh, comprehensive and compelling and and that uh, people were informed by as they read it. It, it was really interesting to read about all, all the intersections uh, that uh, that his uh, uh, in terms of his life about how he is a uh, as you describe he's the the you know, the part of that first generation uh, 
you know, post-emancipation. He is uh, coming of age in in, in America where uh, race is, is being, you know, and, and, and the relationship of, of, of blacks in, in American life is being redefined. And, and he interacts with so many fascinating people. We're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, a, a scribbler in, in a room somewhere who, who who's anonymous. We're talking about someone who is, is mixing with some and, and, and receiving the attention from some of the uh, leading literary lights in America. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, the thing that's fascinating about uh, Dunbar, uh, I, I think, is also fascinating in the production of a biography about an individual, particularly an individual who turned out to be a, a celebrity by some measures or someone who was rather prodigious or a talented. On the one hand, the way in which this person is extraordinary. And so if it were not for his prolific uh um, production of literature, we wouldn't know very much um, about him. Um, but uh, he was also uh, just like you and me. He was someone who uh, had certain fears uh, about life, certain anxieties. Would he be successful or not? He's someone who came from a family where, on the one hand, there were the joys of spending time with uh, parents and siblings, but on the other hand, there was also uh, a certain degree of of uh, trauma that he dealt with in noticing his parents who were in often um, dispute. And so in that respect, the thing that I tried to do in the biography was to illustrate how he is someone who was part of the wave of African-Americans who were born after the emancipation of slaves. And so there's someone who probably knew of people in his social circle, in his family, who formerly were slaves. Uh, and so in that respect, he was able to connect to and understand the challenges that African-Americans faced while they were enslaved in the first half of the 20th, uh, 19th century. On the other hand, he was also someone who, uh, as a descendant, he himself did not experience slavery. And so he was part of a generation of people uh, pivoting toward uh, the modernity of the future, the ways that he could uh, gain access to newfound civil rights that African-Americans were coming to uh, experience and in some respects enjoy uh, towards the latter part of the uh, 19th century. It's still true that uh, Jim Crow segregation uh, overshadowed uh, the ways in which blacks and whites could interact. Those particular issues um, certainly infiltrated the way that he could understand himself as a, as a human being in the United States. But it's also true that he was a person who was uh, ambitious. Uh, he was someone who uh, had great promise as a writer, and he tried to uh, take advantage of the opportunities that came his way. Uh, so uh, in that respect, uh, he never failed to take advantage of interacting with very important people, understanding more about them, uh, those who were literary critics or those who were um, um, politicians. Uh, and that formed the backdrop to a life where he was someone of ultimately great influence, particularly if you were to account for how um, disadvantaged African-Americans were over the course of the 19th century. 
I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon his background by talking a bit more about his parents, because I, I thought their story was fascinating. I mean, I must confess when I was reading the book and, and I saw uh, that his uh, Joshua, his father, Joshua, was born in 1816. I did the math in my head and said, oh, it's got to be a typo. <laughs> and yet, as you explained, he, he has these parents of a of, of very uh, – uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a considerable age gap in his parents, and that from that you have these these very uh, different experiences in life before uh, Joshua and Matilda, and Matilda meet and 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 uh, start their family. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, so Joshua was was quite older, and um, he was someone who uh, was uh, born in uh, Kentucky, and he was someone who fled. Uh, slavery in Kentucky. I touch on how um, Umbar came to understand the experiences of his father, and he had recast it uh, as a short story called uh, The Ingrate. And it was a story about how an African-American came to uh, learn, um, you know, cipher, as it was called um, at one time, but just uh, the aspects of knowledge that enabled him to uh, uh, find his way to freedom. Henry Louis Gates Jr. often talks about how literacy was the portal uh, to uh, freedom for slaves. Uh, that is a, a general storyline that you see in the likes of Frederick Douglass uh, in his uh, autobiographies of the 19th century. And so there was a way that uh, how you can think about Joshua is is how, how someone who, uh, though enslaved, was ambitious uh, personally and by some degrees uh, intellectually uh, to the extent that he could in order to understand how he could uh, free himself. And so Joshua was someone who had fled uh, to Canada. Uh, he had passed through Ohio, uh, as many people did, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the under, Underground Railroad. And he's someone who had served in the uh, Union Army. Um, in that experience, he wasn't uh, able to be on the front lines because he suffered uh, varicose veins. And in that respect, he was rather limited in what he could do uh, in the Union Army. But this was an opportunity that many African-Americans participated in uh, as the uh, Union Army sought to fend off the Confederate Army and to establish uh, the, um, the future of what was then the um, uh, United States. Uh, and so, on the other hand, his mother was uh, someone who also was enslaved uh, in Kentucky, and she had a different kind of experience. Uh, eventually, she was manumitted, and she had made her way to connect with uh, relatives in Ohio. Um, but she is someone who, uh, aside from Joshua, uh, had a uh, a, a relationship with someone who had uh, uh, such that she had uh, two sons uh, as a result of that um, relationship. And with these two sons who um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar would come to be very close to, at least early on in his life, um, with, with this family, she moved to um, Ohio. And so it was ultimately in Dayton, Ohio, that Joshua and uh, his mother Matilda uh, uh, met. And it was there that uh, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was born. One of the things that I, I took from your book, although you never quite frame it this way, was the amount of, of stress that uh, Joshua seems to have suffered from over his life and how that stress manifested itself in his alcoholism. And that, that's a real shadow that you uh, uh, described throughout the book, the notion of his alcoholism and, and, and how that 
might have affected his son because that that of course becomes a, a problem that 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 Paul uh, uh, exhibits throughout his uh, adult life. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the thing that I try not to do in, in, in a biography is to uh, speculate too much or to force a particular interpretation. But I, I will grant that we have this coincidence. We have Joshua, who uh, was um, an alcoholic, and he was someone who was rather restless in the home as he was married to Matilda. And there were a host of um, repercussions, emotional, physical, violent in that home. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar himself turned out to be um, an alcoholic and he was rather uh, restless in his home with Alice and there were a a range of repercussions there. Uh, But obviously the context for their um, uh, alcoholism uh, were different. In the case of Joshua, he was someone who was part of uh, particular circles, particularly among so- soldiers who um, entertained um, uh, having uh, alcohol. Also, later on, when he was in the veteran's home, where he ultimately settled toward the latter part of his life, uh, alcoholism was rampant there. Uh, in the case of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, uh, you know, uh, alcohol was seen as a, a kind of a remedy to withstand the pain of certain ailments, and for his, in his situation, um, for his uh, tuberculosis, and and in either respect, there was the uh, specter of addiction, and and certainly we can think about how people navigate through and come to. Uh, withstand alcoholism, but it was different at that time uh, in the 19th century, and certainly for African-Americans who did not have access to the same kind of resources that people otherwise have today. And so there's a way in which there's this gravitational pull uh, on the father and the son to this way of life uh, that they shared, and um, and that played itself out in in uh, remarkably consistent ways as they uh, respectively interacted with their spouses. You also have at the same time uh, the uh, uh, you know the dynamic with his mother and how you know in the same way that it, that his father was this uh, very you know uh, he you know, he was. He was an alcoholic. He was oftentimes violent, and, and how? And then he eventually, you know, uh, abandons the family. And it, and you have Paul, you know, becoming very devoted to his mother so much so that it becomes uh, an issue in uh, his own uh, marriage uh, later in life. That's right. Uh, and so something that is true is that with the abandonment by Joshua. Uh, the increased attachment between Matilda and her sons. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Matilda is someone who had to endure great loss, the loss of having a stable household with uh, a married man, uh, also the loss of um, their daughter, um, Elizabeth, who, who died of what was called dropsy. And so the, what was left behind were her sons and, and Dunbar, Paul Lawrence Dunbar was someone who uh, was rather proactive in uh, having a livelihood and providing support for uh, his mother. And so I think what we see across the the biography is the establishment of a close bond between the mother and the son and how despite 
the uh, instability of Paul Lawrence Dunbar's life, whether personally or professionally, he still had an ongoing relationship with his mother and and that kind of um, uh, devotion was reciprocated by Matilda uh, toward him. And so uh, I'm inclined to say that that you're right, that um, in learning about Paul Lawrence Dunbar in this book, you learn a lot about uh, his mother and the ways in which she herself was extremely resilient in the face of her own challenges. And and I would even go so far to say that not only did uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar um, uh, absorb certain characteristics of his father, he also absorbed uh, certain traits of his mother, uh, someone who was rather temperamental, but she was relentless in her pursuit of uh, opportunity, being uh, at one period of time a single mother who had to take her two sons um, from Kentucky to Ohio to establish a new way of life. Dunbar was someone Paul Lawrence Dunbar himself was someone who, um, despite the various people who came in and out of his life, he tried to do the best that he could. That relentlessness, uh, is, I think, is very evident uh, throughout his life, as you describe it in the book. And I was thinking in particular about how early it uh, emerges. His his uh, his uh, childhood, his education, I thought, were really interesting in the sense that, in some ways, it defies the the the, the popular image we have of Jim Crow America. And obviously, we're not talking about, say, Alabama or Mississippi. We're talking about Ohio and how he it, it's it's a different lifestyle. And it, it's just fascinating to see it's, it's where he starts crossing paths with the with, with with these interesting people. In particular, he has this newspaper with, of all people, Orville Wright. <laughs> it's just it's just right. so fascinating to 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 to, to see that 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 that, that uh, initial intersection there where I mean obviously he's not you know Orville Wright you know he this is this is you know years a few years before he uh, he begins uh, working with his brother on 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 heavier uh, in their flight but unless it, it shows that just the you know the, the fact that at the same time he's also working with Orville Wright uh, to to uh, in this literary endeavor. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so uh, I think how you started off the question is very important. This is, you know, um, <clears throat> Ohio is not Mississippi or Alabama at that time. You know, Ohio was a rather progressive state in some respects. It was a place where uh, there was some a degree of dissolution with respect to racial segregation. But nonetheless, uh, it was a place where African-Americans, particularly of Dunbar's age as he was going through, uh, you know, middle school and high school, they were few and far between. Uh, and so in this respect, he was rather isolated, but he also was someone who developed um, important relationships, which I detail in the biography. Uh, one of them, as you say, was with Orville Wright. Uh, you know, I think um, if you're in Ohio and you go through of the museums that celebrate Orville Wright. I think it's common knowledge, his relationship to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I also cite in the book how Orville himself, even towards the latter part of Orville's life, would comment on his bond with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, but I think broadly outside of Ohio in this country, not, not many people are aware of how the iconic aviators Orville and Wilbur had this uh, this kind of um, attraction to relationship with Lawrence Dunbar from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Orville and Wilbur 
uh, came from a family that was highly educated. Their father, um, a Milton, was someone who was an editor of a religious publication. Uh, and in their home, they were especially close to reading and writing and, and printing. And so uh, Orville and Wilbur had embarked on a printing press. And you have, at the same time, uh, Paul Ernst Dunbar, who is someone who was trying to excel as a, a writer. And so it was a perfect alignment of circumstances. Um, and so you find that in the early part of high school, uh, Paul Arts Dunbar was able to interact with Orville and Wilbur in publishing, as you point out, the Dayton Tatler. It was a publication for particularly the, uh, the African-American community in Dayton. And it was through that uh, entrepreneurial venture, if you will, that Paul Ernst Dunbar learned about the commercial marketplace. He learned about what it means to communicate oneself to a readership. He understood the different literary voices that he could have, the editorial voice where you're commenting on cultural and political issues, the poetic voice where you are publishing snippets of verses for people to consume for brief entertainment. Uh, he learned the voice of producing prose, pr producing drama, all of the various ways in which readers were able to consume literature in the last decade of the 19th century. He was also able to understand what it meant to be in due course a professional writer, how your success exists at the nexus between your own artistic desires to communicate yourself and on the other hand, uh, the kind of, of literature that people would actually enjoy and want to buy. All of those things that he was, you know, he was he was learning of in bits and pieces. And in the backdrop of that, you have or or Orville Wright, who has his own dreams of being an inventor, and he's dropping nuggets about the idea of aviation. And so, it's one of those stories which I actually publishes an excerpt of in the in the publication Literary Hub, which uh, readers can see today, uh, about this relationship. And, and I think that it's one of the uh, uh, lesser told stories of uh, early uh, African-American literature that people should know about. It's uh, and, and I think that entrepreneurial spirit really becomes uh, a key component to why he uh, you know becomes so recognized early on because you really indicate that the the driving spirit it's, it's not just about you know his awareness of those things but his determination to see it through I mean he publishes at, at, and we're talking about a, a relatively short life here but he publishes at such an early age I'm, I'm thinking about Oak and Ivy I'm thinking about the uh, the agreement that he has which basically says you know, where, where he, you know, he, he's, you know, putting upon his shoulders the, the burden of, of, of self-promotion of, of, yeah. you know, of, of his works. Yeah, that's right. You know, Oak and Ivy came out in 1893. That was his very first book of poetry uh, at that time. Uh, you know, remember, he was born in 1872. And so he was in 21 years old uh, when that book came out. And it was... Um, a, a book that uh, collected some of the early verse that he had produced uh, in um, late middle and even uh, high school. And so it would be regarded as juvenilia. But I think in that work, you can see um, him 
telegraphing some of the forms and themes that would come to guide his vision of poetry uh, later on in his career. Um, one thing that you do see across the poems that he had produced, not to go too far into the story, are lyrics, these kind of uh, verses that are easy to read, easy to recite, easy to memorize. And uh, what you do find today in people who grew up on Paul Lawrence Dunbar as children, uh, they uh, remember reciting his verse from memory, either in church or in school, and people still recite these things, these poems uh, today. And so what you find in Oak and Ivy is his attempt to lay out a, a kind of a poetic landscape of expression. And it is uh, through that means, I think, that people started to uh, understand the, the, the possibilities of his talent. Could you elaborate a little about what Dunbar did as a writer? He wrote in a variety of forms. Could you discuss his literary works and his literary voice, especially as the latter came to define him as a writer? Yes, uh, Dunbar was a versatile writer. Uh, he wrote uh, poetry, he wrote fiction, uh, he experimented with drama, and he wrote uh, in the essay. And so what I try to do in the biography is to showcase his skill across a variety of literary genres. Uh, it's also true that within uh, poetry, he uh, demonstrated different voices. Uh, on the one hand, he uh, wrote in what was called formal English. It's kind of the high diction that you would come across in Victorian literature of the 19th century. On the other hand, he also uh, knew quite well uh, the voice of dialect, and there was great interest in dialect in the latter part of the 19th century in American literature. Uh, Mark Twain was well known for writing in dialect in his novel, Huckleberry Finn. There was Joel Chandler Harris, George Washington Cable. Uh, these were uh, writers who uh, entertained readers because dialect had uh, captured a particular voice of either a regional culture or uh, a certain kind of uh, population. And so Dunbar himself was a master in this kind of voice of dialect, and he leveraged it to talk about Midwestern or Southern communities, and uh, presumably in the eyes of some readers of his time, um, uh, African American, uh, African Americans who had been slaves or who had descended from slaves. Was there a tension for him in that? Because I, I'm thinking when I was reading about, uh, we, especially in the in the early 1890s when he is uh, in contact with Frederick Douglass, he, he really is meeting with a lot of the leading lights of not just African-American literary community, but, but, but African-American public life generally. W was there any sense that, that there was sort of a, a, a pressure perhaps to uh, conform to one style or another? And, and, and did he, or, or was it easy for him to say, I, to say and be accepted in, in, with both literary voices? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Well, I'll say that, first of all, he was rather comfortable uh, in writing in dialect based on his experience. Uh, one of the earliest passages in the biography talks about the voices that he heard from his family and uh, 
social circles, you know, people who uh, had the voice of former slaves who uh, were not as literate as he was, but, you know, in their voices, he heard the cadences of a particular culture, and it turned out to be music for him as he wrote uh, poetry. So he was comfortable in that genre. I think uh, the concern that he uh, uh, demonstrated uh, was that uh, in the commercial sphere, particularly as he was entering uh, great fame in the 1890s, there was the expectation that as an African-American that he would produce uh, literature, especially in this genre, uh, this dialect genre of, of poetry. Uh, you know, William Howells was someone who had thought highly of Dunbar's work, and he said to the world uh, that uh, Dunbar was the poet laureate of his race precisely because he was an expert in writing in dialect. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Dunbar had enjoyed the commercial uh, fame that this accorded him, but but he also uh, was concerned that this would box him into a, a particular kind of writing when he, as I said before, was rather versatile and he wanted to experiment in a host of forms. Uh, I would say that within the African-American literary community of the late uh, 19th century, as you said, there was Frederick Douglass. Uh, Frederick Douglass was a different generation, right? He was much older uh, than uh, Dunbar, and and he uh, staked his own reputation as a former um, writer of the slave narrative, as someone who showed that literacy was the portal to freedom and that uh, writing in beautiful English was a way to demonstrate uh, uh, intellectual capability. There are a number of former slaves who also wrote narratives uh, who uh, appreciated the need to write well. And so Booker T. Washington was another person who, who wrote his autobiography, Up From Slavery, which Showcase his own showcase his own skill as a writer, and so. Uh, but Dunbar, who could write very well, uh, he was probably among a small group of African American writers. There were others uh, who uh, tried to recapture uh, the language of slaves, even though uh, in the late nineteenth century it could have lent itself to certain caricatures uh, of this group as illiterate or as people who cannot uh, speak with the high diction that um, is uh, given, that that is assigned to those who are uh, highly uh, educated. And so you you do see a rather contrast in the African-American literary community, but Dunbar, he was someone who was ambidextrous in writing in multiple forms. And I think it's fascinating to illustrate. Now, as you mentioned, this is a period where he is gaining, in the early 1890s, he's gaining growing literary fame. Uh, But he's also experiencing considerable transformations in his personal life as well, that we see uh, his, uh, this is when he starts, uh, this is when he meets uh, Alice Ruth Moore. Uh, This is when he begins to travel, and this is when he begins to try to settle down, but always with the looming presence of his mother, Matilda, you know, uh, very much, uh, you know, in his life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The thing that I try to show in this biography is um, the relationship between his activities in the literary world and what was going on in his private life. And so this is an intimate portrait 
of Dunbar, and I depended a lot on the hundreds of letters that he had written to his mother Matilda, uh, his his first major girlfriend uh, Rebecca Baldwin, and also Alice Moore, someone he courted and who eventually became his wife. Uh, to them, he would express his anxieties about whether he would become a professional writer, someone who can earn a full living uh, by his pen. And so what you find in these letters are discourses on the commercial marketplace, on his interactions with various literary acquaintances, uh, his ambitions to uh, be successful. And so you're right, you can see, uh, even though they are on different tracks, um, you have the kind of intellectual track of how he was building his skills as a writer. You also see the professional track in terms of the various patrons he was interacting with and also how he was interacting with editors who uh, he want with, you know, for whom he was trying to showcase his work. Um, you also have in his private life uh, various people who saw firsthand uh, that he was uh, ambitious, he was by turns confident, but he was also at times uh, rather uh, anxious and insecure. And you see all of these kinds of streams of life interact. And that I also, you know, is un, is uh, complicated by the fact that, you know, even though he's enjoying the success, even though he's, you know, meeting this woman who it, it seems to provide as much uh, intellectualism as much as emotional stimulation, you he has to earn a living. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to see how he is developing as a writer during this period, but he's also having to find some sort of work. And as you explain, this is, you know, this is America in the Gilded Age. This is, you know, Washington, D.C. in the 1890s. And he has the, the challenges of finding work as a black man while at this because much as today, poetry is not exactly the most remunerative of professions. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, in the wake of graduating from uh, high school, right, in the early 1890s, he was an elevator boy um, when, uh, you know, later on in 1893, uh, when he went to Chicago because the Columbian, World Columbian uh, Exposition was there, uh, he had to find uh, odd jobs and ultimately he would connect with Frederick Douglass and be an assistant uh, as Douglass uh, superintended uh, um, the uh, a, a pavilion devoted to uh, Haiti, uh, and, and later on, um, as he was even you know in the wake of being successful and traveling to England uh, around um, you know eighteen ninety seven, you know finding a job with the Library of Congress, and so you know he wasn't able fully to um, support his living. Uh, as a writer, even though he worked very hard, uh, he was in trying to place his work with uh, uh, publications such as newspapers or, or magazines. Uh, he was thinking about the form of the book and the extent to which he can earn money or royalties and in that respect. But uh, as in the case of many writers, even today in the, in the 21st century, you know, having a day job uh, to make ends uh Meet, uh, that was the way in which he could support his uh, literary goals. 
And the day jobs that we typically think of for writers nowadays as, as teachers and academics, those opportunities simply were, were far fewer for uh, someone of Dunbar's race. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's always important to remember that, you know, uh, you know, slavery came to an end uh, at the close of the Civil War. And so um, by the time Dunbar uh, was in the mid 1890s, and that was the time that he was kind of hitting his stride. And, you know, he had just published Oak and Ivy by then and Majors and Minors uh, was his first major book that was seen by uh that was read and extolled by William Howells in the mid 1890s. You know, that was only three decades removed from the end of slavery, right? And at that time, there were still perceptions of African Americans that uh, were anchored to preconceptions of what they can and can't do. From the day of slavery, he was interacting with people who perhaps had once owned slaves or whose families had owned slaves, or, or these are people who uh, were aware of uh, slavocracy as it existed only a few decades earlier. And so uh, Dunbar himself was fighting through these preconceptions, and, and uh, these attitudes towards African Americans dictated their life choices, their professional opportunities. And so um, being a, a, an elevator operator, um, there is dignity in that work, but it also illustrated that, you know, African-Americans uh, could have been, um, were indeed kind of restricted to certain strata of uh, professional life. And so I think you're absolutely right. He was contending with the fate of uh, African-Americans trying to persevere in a modern America uh, and being uh, enfranchised in terms of political and economic opportunities. Uh, against that backdrop, he was trying to find his way as a writer. To what degree did that contribute to his struggle with all the temptation he, he faced in his life? Because you describe how he is, you know, dealing with all these issues. He's, he's trying to establish a relationship with Moore. He's trying to uh, establish a, a, a literary reputation. He's trying to find a living. And, and he, and at the same time, he he has the, these problems. He's uh, you know with with, with fidelity and, and 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 with substances and substance abuse. Did, did that exacerbate it, or or, uh, or 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 did it create a lot of those problems that he faced over the course of his life? Right. Uh, you know, I think it, 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 it's it's um, you know I, I I'm reluctant to assign strict causality between these things, but. Uh, it's also true still that the reality was that they interfered with uh, each other. And so um, he had physical ailments from uh, pneumonia to tuberculosis, uh, among others. And uh, he was trying to find ways to cope with those ailments. And as I indicate in the biography, um, you know, alcohol was a way for people to soothe some of these ailments that they had. And if you're not careful, you can suffer addiction in the way that people have suffered addiction since that time in the 20th and 21st, 21st centuries, right? Uh, it's also true, you know, as I've shown that, you know, he, uh, as he became increasingly dependent on alcohol, that he would even show up to uh, poetry readings where he had to deliver verses uh, to audiences. He showed up drunk, and uh, and in, in that respect, 
his uh, substance abuse interfered with the excellence of his uh, performance. Uh, I can also say that uh, there's evidence of how, you know, given this kind of uh, behavior, that it had an impact on how well he interacted with Alice privately uh, and how he uh, had a kind of bipolar personality at times, but he um, was further rather violent verbally and in some instances physically. And uh, I wouldn't rule out uh, the fact that he had these uh, addictions that, you know, whether to alcohol or to uh, having a wandering eye and being flirtatious with other women, all of these coalesced in a rather complex and in some ways contradictory uh, life. Uh, so what makes Paul Lawrence Dunbar remarkable is that he was both extraordinary yet rather ordinary. I mean, he was an extraordinary literary and intellectual talent whose writings we enjoy today but and, and learn from today. Uh, but, uh, but he was also someone who was as complex and contradictory as any one of us. Uh, would be in the early 21st century. You know, there are ways in which people who are uh, rather outstanding from a cultural standpoint in terms of what the public sees, but privately uh, they are grappling with certain uh, uh, demons emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and uh, how they reckon with these various demons, if I were to put a pejorative spin on it, uh, had repercussions all throughout their lives. One of the things that I, I found fascinating in that regard is the fact that, you know, it, it, to me, there was a, a, a statement there about how even with all the issues that, that he was evidencing, Alice made the decision to marry him in 1896, that, that she, you know, found that, that, you know, that the Paul Lawrence Dunbar that she knew, she, she was not blind to his infidelities, but she, in the end, uh, chose to marry him. H how did that marriage, uh, change him and, and, and to what degree uh did uh the the marriage uh you know and end up you know not changing him i mean to what degree did did it uh you know alter his his, his life and his work and, and to and to what degree did uh ultimately he not you know make the you know did he not end up you know abandoning uh his flirtatiousness and his and and his infidelities you're right. That's right. Uh, so uh, you, you have to remember with Alice. So he especially started corresponding with her in letters in uh, 1895, right? And so by the time they are uh, married, uh, you know, years later, they've been they've had an extended relationship. So Alice sort of knew over time the kind of person that she was getting. She was getting someone who was remarkably talented, someone who could you know, even contribute to her own career because she was a fledgling uh, you know, writer uh, of poetry and fiction, uh, you know, journalism uh, at that time. Uh, it, but she also knew that he was someone who even admitted to be um, uh, attracted to uh, women, and she wanted to make sure that he would be faithful to her. Uh, he was also rather temperamental, uh, and um, and that kind of uh, you know personality you know harkens back to um, his own mother Matilda, who admitted that she was temperamental um, in her own life in terms of how she interacted with her own husband, Joshua Dunbar, who's uh, you know, Paul's father. Uh, and uh, given these circumstances, 
they uh, got married. And like most marriages, it, it wasn't easy. Uh, you have in marriages of individuals, you have the marriages of um, uh, families. And so even as he was courting Alice and she was considering whether to um, uh, spend the rest of her life with him, and, you know, she was consulting with her own family and they had her own, they had their own reservations um, about him. And so it, the context of the biography that I find most fascinating is seeing how his personal relationship with Alice mediated a full range of ways in which he was experiencing the world. And so the decisions he was making about uh, literature, he talked with Alice uh, rather closely, how he was thinking about issues of race and how he was interacting with whites. He was rather forthcoming in talking with Alice about that. Uh, he found a great inspiration in Alice herself as a, as a muse. And so the ways in which he wrote lyrics of, of love uh, and, and life, or, or on the other hand, of being lowly, um, you can see certain autobiographical resonances uh, in, in that work. And so I, I find that uh, the marriage of Paul and Alice can be a thematic centerpiece for understanding uh, you know, various uh, journeys uh, Dunbar himself was going through. The one thing that you can't say that she did, though, was still his uh, creative creativity, because it, it's fascinating to, to in, in your in that in, in uh, you know the later part of his life how he was continuing to do different literary forms. He became a librettist. He's he's putting on shows. His his partnership with Will Cook, uh, the you know, Clarindy and, and and its variations. It's just fascinating to see how. How diverse uh, his his literary uh, output is in, in terms of its different forms, and and it's it's what it just underscores the the you know the, this tragedy of what would have happened had he lived because he, he seemed to be you know willing to not to be a I mean he he thrived as a as a poet, but he also was doing all these other uh, uh, genres of literature and 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 doing quite well with them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you to take a step back, you'll see that. You know, between 1893 and 1898, uh, you know, he had published you know, six, seven books of poetry and you know, a novel and, and, uh, and, fi- and short fiction. Uh, he published another eight books between 1900 and 1903. That's, all, that's a span of three years. And he's published um, seven more, you know, at, between 1903 and his and his death. And so he was extremely prolific between 1893 and his death in 1906, and though that's only uh, you know 13 years, and so to your point, um, he died a couple, a decade and a half, two decades before the uh, launch of the Harlem Renaissance, and it would have been remarkable to see how prolific he would have been, or he would have continued to be between 1906 and let's say uh, 1920, uh, if healthy, you know, his, his uh, productivity, you know, waxed and waned relative to how healthy he was physically. Um, and it would also would have been interesting to see, you know, what's the kind of work he would have produced during the Harlem Renaissance. You know, he enjoyed going to New York City and visiting what I described as the Tenderloin, where there were, you know, where he would, you know, touch base with 
you know, James Weldon Johnson. You know, James Weldon Johnson wrote the autobiography of an ex-colored man, but he also uh, published, uh, you know, writing on uh, African-American vernacular poetry. And he thought that, uh, you know, Dunbar's work, his his poetry, you know, was emblematic of only humor and pathos. And that was a restricted realm to, uh, you know, understand the vernacular complexity of African-American language, right? And so uh, during the Harlem Renaissance, Dunbar would have been a rather anomalous figure, if I may put it that way, given that many writers of the 1920s uh, were responding to what uh, Dunbar, in uh, in their eyes, uh, actually uh, represented. And so just to circle back to the, the premise of your question, Yes, he was full steam ahead in his creativity, uh, and he was someone who had built up such momentum uh, during his career that it's too bad that he died, in my view, prematurely in his early 30s because it would have been an even more remarkable story to see how he would have evolved uh, through the early 20th century. That tragedy of his uh, premature death, you know, cost us the opportunity to see what he would have done. How did he cope with the the prospect of his death? Because it wasn't a sudden death. It was uh, it was from tuberculosis. He had received a diagnosis. He had sought what, what treatment was available at the time. What was he, uh, oh, oh, you know, aware at some point that that his time was short? Did that? Uh, change what he was trying to do in any way and, and how did that uh and how did that influence uh, his his uh relationship with with alice given that the influence that she in turn had over his uh literary legacy after his death yes yeah, so that's a good point and so towards the latter part of his uh life uh let's say as we approach 1900 and thereafter um you know as he became because he was so uh widely known, and he was reciting his work, um, if there were instances where he was not able to show up to give a reading, that was discussed in the news. And so I I illustrate instances where uh, when uh, he had to cancel recitations of his poetry, uh, there were headlines about how Dunbar was sick. Uh, And there was also uh, headlines about his travel to Colorado, where many people traveled to at the turn of the 20th century because the, you know, the air presumably was better. uh, And it was a way in which you could recover from things like uh, tuberculosis or uh, pneumonia. And, And it was also the case that even more as you get towards the late months and years of his life, the headlines said that you know, Dunbar was approaching the end. I mean, they were aware that he had moved to Dayton, Ohio, and so his life had come full circle. He had purchased a home there, and um, his mother would spend significant time with him to help take care of him. That was a time when he was separated from Alice, and so he was almost alone except for the person who had been committed to him throughout his whole life, his his mother. And he would ruminate on his mortality. You know, he would comment on how uh, he no longer had the energy to perform his poetry in the way that he had when he was much younger. And so he would spend a lot of time in his home office called Loafing Holt, 
where he would read the full expanse of American literature. It was a considerably wide library. It's also where he would continue to syndicate his individual poems, and he would, you know, towards the latter part of his life, reprint individual poems as collections of of work. But it was certainly a, a, a life where he just kind of settled into what his fate was, which is someone who uh, could not be as globetrotting as he used to be. Uh, it was a time when he was already rather separated from Alice. He was trying to uh, make amends for a, a, a falling out that they had where he had essentially evicted her from their home uh, in uh, Washington, uh, D.C., and she didn't forgive him uh, for that, and she also didn't forgive him for his violent uh, uh, verbal and physical uh, behavior. And so he was recording with a host of circumstances at that time that debilitated him ultimately and in due course uh, led to his death. And it was a, it was a gradual decline, um, but it was a noticeable one uh, for many in his inner circle and even for uh, those uh, in the media who were following his life. I, I find what you described in, in your epilogue is very tragic. You, you mentioned how uh, no less a personage than W.B. Du Bois reached out to a publisher after Dunbar dies and, and talks about assembling some sort of uh, collection of his works and, or bibliography of his writings. And they, they, they basically say, you know, we don't think that there's any market for it. And, and, and yet, Today he he has the stature that that was denied him upon his death. It's and I, I'm wondering if uh, how how it was that his literary reputation ha- has has only grown since uh, his his uh, premature passing. Yeah, that's right. And so uh, I, I do say at, at the outset of the epilogue uh, how uh, Du Bois had interest in uh, a, a putting together. A, a bibliography of Dunbar's writing, and uh, you know, publishers then, as they do now, say that uh, you know, assess whether it would be viable commercially. You know, as I just touched on, towards the latter part of Dunbar's life, he wasn't as energetic uh, a writer. He wasn't as energizing uh, as he was in the 1890s when he emerged as a phenomenon. Uh, according to the vision of William Dean Howells. And so the extent to which that he could attract uh, people, uh, you know, that very much changed over the course of his life. But, you know, as we touched on regarding the Harlem Renaissance, there are moments in the 20th century when there were uh, reconsiderations of his work. You know, James Weldon Johnson, that was a flashpoint of how, uh, African-American writers were exper- ex- experimenting with dialect, with vernacular in new ways. You know, this is a world that included, you know, not just James Weldon Johnson, but Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, it included Claude McKay, uh, you know, the, the, the range of writers who were trying to illustrate the complexity of um, African-American vernacular cadences. Um, later on, uh, as we approached the, the Black Arts Movement, uh, there, were, there was a, a major edited collection published, uh, you know, um, that focused on uh, reconsidering Dunbar's work. And, and that was at a time when Black studies as an academic discipline was, was growing. And people were 
examining Dunbar's work in new ways. And so they were breaking out of the mold of to what extent he was, you know, kind of just caricaturing, uh, you know, certain uh, stereotypical uh, language of African-Americans. And actually there were multiple layers of his biographical life and of his literary expertise. And I think now at the turn of the 21st century, you know, even in my own work, I've been writing on Dunbar for decades now, uh, you see that he was a rather complex individual and in that you can do remarkable close readings of his work and you can situate him related to the, the the great literary movements of his time. I touch on the fireside poets. I touch on, you know, um, you know uh, the, the vogue for dialect, to be sure. You can look at his fiction and how there are resonances of literary naturalism that you would find in the works of Theodore Dreiser and, and, uh, um, and Stephen Crane. Uh, and you can also talk about him in more complex ways about how he was embodying the complexities of reconstruction, that historical time period where African-Americans were trying to build their, fran- their constitutional franchise in economic and political and civic ways, and also how Dunbar himself foretold a, a new wave of experimentation that would give rise to the Harlem Renaissance. Just situating Dunbar in that greater lens of American literary history, and then zooming into his verse to understand his mastery of a host of tropes and rhyme schemes, even the metrical rhyme schemes in his dialect poetry. I think we today now have the analytical tools to uh, do uh, even more uh, justice to uh, what Dunbar had done in his life and career. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I am working on uh, trying to have more people read uh, this book. (laughs) So, so yes, you know, I I think, um, you know, unlike my previous uh, books, which were, you know, primarily academic books and, you know, it was, I was in main conversation with other scholars, rightly so. uh, And, uh, and that's where great knowledge emerges in many ways. This is a more accessible book. It's circulating more widely even beyond the uh, academy. So the thing that I'm doing more today than ever before is uh, engaging with you and other interviewers just to talk about uh, how fascinating Dunbar's life is and also uh, coincident with the 150th anniversary of his birth and there have been celebrations of his work across the country. And so I'm trying to superintend the success of this book. But moving forward, you know, I do have my eyes on writing a book about uh, Henry James and James Baldwin. Uh, you know, Henry James was rather influential over James Baldwin's life, particularly as James Baldwin was thinking about cosmopolitanism as a context for understanding himself as an American, but also it was a context in which he developed truly rich ideas conceptually rich uh, um, approaches to race and and culture. And Henry James, uh, you know, people tend to associate him with the Gilded Age and writers of the uh, late 19th century, you know, uh, Edith Wharton, uh, William Howells, among others. Um, But, you know, 
looking at Henry James in terms of his impact on the 20th century and looking at James Baldwin, not just in relation to Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, those were his African-American contemporaries, but looking earlier in the 20th century, those two writers can be bookends for a fascinating cosmopolitan a foray in what it, it means to be an American. And I think that kind of story could um, provide insight today, given the transnational nature of how people interact and establish their sense of belonging in the world. It sounds like a very fascinating and, and quite relevant book. I, I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Yeah, well, I must say that uh, uh, working on Dunbar took me uh, 14 years to write this biography. So uh, this book uh, on James and Baldwin will probably be done 30 years from now, but hopefully it's <laughs> Hopefully sooner than that. <laughs> sooner than that. <laughs> Gene, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care.